May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There's this old tale about a letter sent from Governor Martin Van Buren to then-President Andrew Jackson, the former arguing to the latter about the need to upgrade the canal system in the U.S. and to not pay money or spend money on this newfangled idea of railroads. And, um, and he wrote to the president this letter, supposedly, that says, and I, I read it, as you may well know, Mr. President, railroad carriages are pulled at enormous speeds of 15 miles per hour by engines which, in addition to endangering life and limb of passengers, roar and snort their way through the countryside, setting fire to crops, scaring livestock, and frightening women and children. The Almighty certainly never intended that people should travel at such breakneck speeds. Of course, by comparison, a modern passenger airline travels at like 500 knots, which is like almost 600 miles an hour, um, compared to 15 miles an hour breakneck speed. It's a little bit laughable. And yet, then Governor Martin Van Buren was not without merit. Almost 75 years to the day after he wrote that letter, um, the United States experienced one of the worst locomotive disasters in its history. There was a passenger express train that was traveling over Porter Creek Gulch in Colorado. This flash flood came and it wiped out the, the wooden bridge upon which the train was traveling over. And it, it upturned all the carts. There was a, uh, a, a sleeper car, a, a chair car, um, several others that, that th- went over. Ninety-six lives were lost. Only two dozen survived. The, um, the news report read, uh, was as such says, With breaking of daylight this morning, the full horror of the scene became apparent. Wreckage is visible in all directions, dead bodies being seen here and there, and piles of debris from the car, driftwood, and mud. Since then, there have been multiple derailments, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Here's a few of them. All Saints Day, Brooklyn, New York, 1918. A commuter train that was entering into a tunnel derailed, hit the tunnel, killed 102 people. September 6, 1943, a Philadelphia commuter train, the fastest in the Pennsylvania Railroad, derailed when, when uh, one of its axles got so hot that it broke and uh, the, the entire train came off, 79 people died. Just last month, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a train, it was a uh, freight train coming on the um, Norfolk Southern Railway, derailed. It had double-stacked um, uh, cargo carriers that rolled down the hill and just missed landing in the middle of the road. Fortunately, nobody was hurt, but the Pittsburgh Public Safety Director said we came close to having a tragedy. We're very fortunate cars could have potentially come down onto the T-car station or onto Carson Street, just down the road. And so if you're taking the rapid to watch the game today, (laughs) you're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. You'll be all right. Call me. Make sure. Um, You know, a train only works if it stays on its rails. If it comes off while it's moving, it can be horrible. It can be a disaster. I think if St. James had known what locomotives were, he might have used it as a metaphor. He might have used it as a metaphor to avoid the wreckage that could happen to our faith. That we ought to be careful about the way that we live because if faith becomes just an intellectual abstraction... If it's just something that we hold between our ears, then it is not real. And our faith will be derailed. 
If faith does not have an ethical imperative, it's not real. What do I mean? Well, I mean this. In a few minutes, probably more than a few, I'll finish this sermon. We're all going to stand up and we're going to say, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, the resurrection of the dead, so on. And if that's what faith is to us, something that I state as a matter of what I believe in my mind, and that's all it is, then James says that faith is dead. It must have an ethical imperative. There must be moral demands that it makes on our life choices. If we don't have moral demands upon our life choices, then it's not real faith. Listen to what he says, the very last verse. So faith by itself, if it does not have erga in Greek, works, deeds, actions. If it does not have actions, it is death. Christian faith is not an abstract moral or abstract intellectual concept. It has moral imperatives. It's not enough to simply think something. It must cause us to do something. If our neighbor's house is on fire, we are morally obliged to at least pick up the phone and call the fire department. And if the house burns down, we are morally obliged to show up with blankets and food and a room. Come, stay here. In our lesson today, James has two other areas that he picks up on. Two areas that, that, that faith causes us to have a moral imperative. And that deals with people who are in need. But there are, there are particular ways they're in need. It's mostly when they are in, in financial need. And the two ways that we are to deal with people who are in financial need are this. The first one is not to discriminate. That's the way he says. If you, if you take your bulletin, will you look with me at, at the beginning of the, the lesson? Carol did such a great job reading it, but it, it bears being reread, doesn't it? Verse, verse 1, my brothers and sisters, it should be, no, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and a fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Show no partiality. Some translations, be not a respecter of persons. What James actually literally says is don't receive by the face. This is what the word means. Don't receive by the face. Don't look at someone and, and receive them based upon their appearance. And he gives an example. A man comes in with... with with fine clothing and golden rings. In the ancient world, if you could afford to wear gold around your hand, you were uber wealthy. A man comes in wearing signs of, of, of opulent wealth, and you say, here, best seat in the house for you. And another guy comes in with shabby clothing, the translation has it, I would translate to filthy clothing, comes in with filthy clothing, and you say, hmm, Stand back there by the door or sit here at my feet like a servant. Have you not become judges? Moreover, with evil thoughts. He calls that evil thinking. Discrimination based upon appearance, according to St. James, is evil. Second thing he says. The second way that we can derail our faith is through indifference. Look again at the passage with me, will you? Down way towards the end, verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed 
and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them things in need for the body, what good is that? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? It's no good at all. It's no good at all. It's, not, it's of no value. Literally, there is no profit for you in that. When someone sees a need, presumably has the means with which to meet the need, and does nothing, James says, that faith is worthless. In fact, it's worse than worthless. It's dead. Taking care of basic necessities, food, clothing, coats, hats, gloves, a sandwich, a bowl of soup, is not only important, it's imperative. But Christians... Having faith in Christ means not just believing in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but taking care and loving the people we see. And if we don't, our faith is derailed. Now, as I'm reading through this passage, as you just simply looked at it yourself, and it's one of these passages that's blindingly obvious. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is just one of those ones that gets in our faces, doesn't it, right at the get-go, and just uh, it says, hey, look, This is a a real-world issue. Because despite the fact that we are removed from St. James's culture by 2,000 years, the more things have changed, the more they have stayed the same. There's still regular needs. Mark Twain famously said, um, It ain't the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. (laughs) This is one of those where the parts that I do understand, because it's so easily read, gets in our faces. Discrimination. Does it still happen? Well, you bet the baby's milk money it does, right? Discrimination does still happen. It's between rich and poor, as in in James' text, black and white, Asian, Latino, men and women. People are still received by the face in our world. Just this morning, I was flipping through an internet passage, and I saw this uh, quote from Jane Goodall just uh, this week. She said, talking about raising money for her work when she first began, she said, it didn't hurt that I wasn't born ugly. <laughs> yeah, you're right, it didn't. Uh, great, really great, a backward way of saying that. In the United States, we've enacted laws, we have a constitutional amendment, right? That, um, that, you know, equal protection under the law. Is that the 14th Amendment? Is it, Counselor? Maybe somebody out here? I think it's 14th Amendment. Um, the Civil Rights Act, 1964. Can't discriminate against people. The Americans with Disabilities Act, 1990. Can't discriminate if a person's able-bodied or not. But these laws only change commerce. They only affect the way we deal with one another in a commercial society. Martin Luther King said in 1968 that the most segregated hour of the week is 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. And it still is. Here's the bottom line. There is not a multiplicity of races. There is one race, the human race. We all come from the same parentage. And that parentage, according to St. Luke, is God. That we are all children of God. When I was in my first assignment as a youth pastor, um, I cared for teens. I worked in, we had a like, regular weekly meeting of teens, and um, you know, there, were, there were quite a bit of them. There were 50 uh, teenagers that came on a weekly basis to youth group meetings, and we did all kinds of other activities as well. But one time I had this uh, uh, invitation to go with a group of men, adults. They were mostly fathers of the teens that I, I was working with. And, and we were going to go from Dayton to Indianapolis in these church vans. And we all drove over there. And you know how they do. Just banter and conversation. And, and, 
And this was the mid-90s, a um, all-white, upper-middle-class parish, and, and we're driving in, in this van, and, and the conversation about interracial dating among the teens came up. I knew this was going to be an awkward conversation. I tried to stay out of it, um, but the dads kept going back and forth, saying what they were thinking about it, and it was pretty clear uh, that they were against it. And I knew inwardly that saying nothing was tacit support for what they were saying, and what they were saying was racist. And so I'm not a very courageous person. Um, I'm a people pleaser by nature. You know that. You know I'm like the golden retriever of pastors. You know this is this is sort of not what I do. But I I said to them, you know, I have two young sons at the time, and I would be far more concerned about the content of the character of the young ladies that they date rather than the color of their skin. And boy, you'd have thought. Things were going to get real heated then. All of a sudden, one of the dads says to me, well, then I'm not sure that we want to hear that, our teens hearing that, coming from their leader. And I said, well, I'm not sure that I want to say what you're saying. You know, this is sort of a, a, a tight situation. Unfortunately, someone changed the conversation, changed the subject, and we moved away from it. I'm not a hero. I'm not at all. But I knew there was a moral imperative at that moment. James's point is much more socioeconomic than it is racial. Don't treat people differently because of wealth or poverty. But treating people differently based upon anything is really the same thing, isn't it? It's not about the clothes they wear, the car they drive, the watch on their wrist. If we treated everyone with great dignity, when we met somebody who was uh, you know, of, of great importance in the world, it would be no different. Second of all, that we ought to be attentive to the needs of people around us. Again, still a very contemporary issue, isn't it? People still need coats and hats. They still need a soup or a sandwich. Kids still need school supplies and Christmas gifts and so on. What's more, we have televisions. You guys have a television? You've seen one of these? We have televisions, and they show us images from all over the world. Like when there's a storm or some sort of disaster, we see children who are malnourished and people who die of treatable diseases. And at this point, someone's about ready to retort, or at least thinking it in their minds. If I helped every cause, I would become someone's cause. <laughs> You're right. You would. You can't do everything for every person. That's not the point. The point is when there's somebody directly in front of you, somebody directly in front of me, and I have the power to change that moment, to make their life qualitatively better, do I take care of it? Not just better, do I help them to have daily needs met? Faith ought to move us to action. Our faith ought to move us to action. And if it doesn't, it's dead because it's all by itself. Now, I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's a, um, there's a proposed railroad road, uh, system that's going to go from China to Russia to Canada to the United States. And if you know anything about geography, you're like, but there's a big ocean in between, right? And so this rail system, 8,000 miles of it, is going to go underneath the water. I don't know about you, but um, I would rather fly at 30,000 feet above it than 13,000 feet below it, wouldn't you? I mean, that's just, it just seems like a, a scary proposition. I always think of worst-case scenarios, you know. What would happen if, ooh, whatever, um, a tunnel underneath the ocean with a train barreling at 200 miles an hour through it, 
if it comes off its rails, it's a disaster. Our faith hinges on two rails. What we believe, what we think up here, and outwardly what we do with our hands and our feet, what we do with our resources and our time. And if we are not firmly attached to both, our faith is in peril. We need to be attached to both in order to travel from this world to the next. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.